And it's been a while. Episode 70. Isn't episode 70 the one where he talks about how tired he is? And then he talks about his old dog. And then about something he read about mental health. And then something about comedy. Isn't that the one where he talks about something bizarre, something surreal, and then says, I'll talk to you soon. Yep, that's the one. That's the one you selected. All right, how tired this week? How tired, you wonder? Because you're tired, too. I guess the term adulting means tired. Yeah, taking care of a lot of responsibilities. Trying to find a little window to recharge the old battery. That's the glimmer of hope, right? It always seems like enough rest is coming soon. Like you have this area on the calendar where you're like, yeah, around there we'll probably get a chance to really catch up on some sleep. No, you won't. Yeah, we'll have a chance to really just rest. No, you won't. Yeah, about a week, maybe two, maybe three, four, yeah, five weeks from now we're really gonna have a chance to unwind. No, you won't. Here's why I won't. And by the way, we have flies in the house. We have so many flies, I'm already distracted. And we Googled it, so we probably have an issue where an exterminator has to come to the house. We don't have like three, four, or five flies. We have about 70 flies in the house. But I'll get back to my thought, because you don't care about the flies yet. Okay, hold on, I gotta stop and just get out of swatter. All right, I'm back. I had to edit out that swatting session. I don't like killing flies. I'll just say that. Aren't I a good man? I don't like it. But God damn it, someone has to do it. Hey, first of all, here's how tired. So tired that, you know, you could stumble through a day. You could go through the motions. Most of us know how to go through the motions and fake it like we have enough energy for all of our interactions and all of our job duties. Most of us could get through it tired. But towards the end of the day when you're carrying your bags, you know, bringing your dog back in with your little daughter, you know this old story. I was standing in front of my front door and I got out my keys and I just started using the sensor. I started using the fob. I was pressing it. And I wasn't kidding. I was standing there for about 10 seconds. No, no, the fob doesn't work. I was expecting the door to just magically open. That's it. All the brain energy, gone. That was my wake-up call. To realize not enough sleep? No, sir, not enough sleep. Some of you have done that. Use the car fob to try to open doors that can't be opened. It happens, I think. You know, it's like putting your ice back in the cupboard instead of the freezer. You've done it, right? You've done some dumb shit. But the car fob at the front door made me realize some things have to change. So here's what's going to change. The reason I'm so tired is because every single night at about 3 a.m., I wake up to the sounds of a screaming beagle. And it starts off kind of calm, like, mm. And I go, oh, no, he's whimpering. He's in pain. And then into an all-out scream, like an adult scream, not like a dog barking. Not like a dog howling, but like somebody is screaming. And I'm going on two years of this. Two years of the most severe, ugly ear infections you've ever seen. If I took a picture of that inner ear canal and sent it to you right now, you you would barf right on your lap. You wouldn't even try to find a toilet. It's just an ugly looking inner ear. So what do I use? Everything. I use everything. I tried CBD. Didn't work. Tried pills, antibiotics. Doesn't work. Steroid injections. Doesn't work. Zymox, Suralon, Montalan. I actually know all these brands of dog ointments. None of them work. 
None of them work. But every time I go to the vet, vet visit 60 bucks plus whatever they put in my goodie bag. That's what it's like. You leave with a goodie bag of ointments and solutions and flushes and pills. Nothing works. Every night, screaming dog. So two days ago, head out to the vet one more time. And this would not be a good reason to put a dog down. So I'm not going to put him down. Went to the vet a couple of days ago and they said, well, at this point, the only thing that works is to take the entire ear out. That's right. It's called ear ablation surgery. I said, give me an estimate. Two days later, they said $2,800. I said, I'll happily go into debt. Let's do it. So the surgery is scheduled. Did I have to tell you the price right there? Yeah. You probably wanted to know. Is it tacky to bring up my expenses? Yeah, sure. But still, part of you wanted to know, right? So they get to keep the velvet flap. I'm not going to remove his entire ear. All right, he'll keep the velvet flap, and then they remove the entire ear canal. And then they sew it up, and then 12 days he heals, and I got a new dog. Not really. I mean, I still have the old son of a bitch, but I'm going to fix that. So then he'll sleep through the night, and then I'll sleep through the night. And then these podcasts are going to sound so much more enthusiastic. I'm going to come on here and sound like I'm awake for the first time. I feel like the last few episodes, it's just very tired. What am I talking about episodes? I feel like the last few weeks, the few months, just very tired. Plus, combine that with a bunch of heavy stuff, stressful stuff, just like a lot of you are going through, right? The yin-yang of life. In the same exact day, you could have something wonderful happen and something absolutely awful happen in the same day. And all you do is say, all right, that's life. That's life. You try not to get too carried away. By the way, on the topic of not getting too carried away, here's a study that I'm going to share with you. Here's what I heard. You want to hear what I heard? I'm not just going to do the they say. Don't you hear that a lot? Well, they say you shouldn't eat fruit before bed. Most of us talk like that. Well, they say you really should get eight hours and eight cups of water. And they say you shouldn't bring your phone to the toilet. And they say you should floss every night. You know, they, 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 they. Forget they for a moment. I'm going to give you my source. All right, my source, Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor published her study. She calls it the 90-second rule. Quote, this is what I wrote down. This is all I wrote down for this podcast, and I'm going to get it right. Quote, when a person has a reaction to something in their environment, there's a 90-second chemical process that happens in the body. After that, any remaining emotional responses is just the person choosing to stay in that emotional loop. 90 seconds. So this doctor says, if we understand our emotions as biochemical events, we see that our experience of anger is a feedback loop between the mind and body. So the mind can reinforce feelings that don't need to be reinforced, and it is a choice to remain in the negative emotions after 90 seconds. Now, because she has doctor in front of her name, I care to understand this and share this with you. So the point is, as long as we don't fuel our fury, In 90 seconds, anything that's plaguing us, anger, sadness, stress, has the opportunity to dissolve. Anything that consumes us for more than 90 seconds is basically our own doing, our own choice. But the body truly needs 90 seconds to process all of this. That's all. Some people are like, really? I thought it was two days. Nope. So step back, create some space between those negative thoughts and your actual actions, and you can make a decision to detach. I know so many people would disagree with that. 
but I'm in a rush to get through the shitty feelings. We know they're coming, right? At least two, three times a day. Nobody's having flawless days, at least I don't think. Or maybe you're having a really good day, but you know, around the corner, there's going to be a moment that just feels terrible. So if you subscribe to this, well, 90 seconds chemically is what I need to process the anger or sadness or negative feelings. And then after that, all I'm doing is choosing to cling to it. And when our mind reinforces that, basically what this doctor's study is saying, it leads to us feeling like emotions are consuming us, but they don't have to. Now, I personally disagree with this. I thought it was fascinating, but I disagree. Like the last time I got angry, was I 90 seconds away from having the actual human ability to disregard those feelings? Like if I processed them hard for a rough 90 seconds, then after that, if I said to myself, now I choose to not be angry, this doctor would say, exactly, you have that choice? I don't know. It's funny that I bring up this study, I bring up this research, and I immediately want to call bullshit. But it's inspiring. I like hearing that. 90 seconds to process anger and emotions. That's it. Anything else? It's a choice. Who's making that choice, though? Who's making that ridiculous choice? Like, you know, today I'm going to hold on to some stress and anger. Today I'm really going to embrace sadness. No, we're always trying to rid it. But I think a lot of people have the inability to get away from it. This all falls under the umbrella of mindfulness, right? If you know to just stay present in a moment, then that moment can pass sooner. Really. Stay present in it. Don't extrapolate a certain thought and say, this is going to stay with me. This is going to haunt me. This is going to dwell. This is going to plague me for a little while. No. If you just say, this is hurting me now, then the scientific research says by identifying the now, it'll subside sooner. All right, you writing this down? I'm using my big words right now. I'm using the big words. Be mindful. I'm actually not naturally mindful. I always thought I might be, but then I realized I'm a classic daydreamer. I think about the type of student I was. I don't think I was an awful student. Okay, and this is before we got diagnosed with things that would allow us to have so many medications where we just focus and focus and focus. Not to say back in my day was so long ago, but, you know, when I was going to elementary, middle, and high school, I don't remember so many kids being on meds for being too wild or emotional. We didn't just label everybody ADHD. And hope that they took their prescriptions. I feel like some people just had whatever their ailment was and tried to stumble through the school system. Now everything's really diagnosed. You know, it's really measured. It's analyzed. You know, from parents to professionals, counselors, administrators. I'm not making the point that we coddle kids. I'm just saying we diagnose. And when I was in high school, I don't know if I would have been diagnosed with something, but focusing was not my strength. I remember looking at the clock and feeling so bored. I think it gives me empathy with my current students. Now, I don't bore them because I'm, come on, come on. I don't bore my students, right? I mean, it's action-packed every day. Treat that classroom like a hot radio show. Or just, you know, keep them stimulated in some way. Keep it interesting. But of course, there's kids that are bored just looking at the clock and saying, get me the fuck out. Not just of this class, but of this school and of the system. I might have been more like that. Loved friends, loved sports. When I think about me in school, but when the bell would ring and they would shove me in a desk and it was up to me to learn, tough. I was daydreaming about people, thoughts. Now, I don't want to say it's amazing that I graduated, got a degree, maintained a decent GPA, 
and continued to the Holy Land of grad school and got another degree to become a teacher. But, you know, I was able to do these things. So I guess I did enough, but I don't remember just like overachieving. I wasn't on the AP path of life. I was doing enough. Yeah, enough to get by. Kind of needed a kick in the ass a lot of the time. And I wasn't defiant. I wasn't rebellious, but I was probably disruptive because I just cared about the laugh. If I could get the class to laugh, hey, what a victory. The psychology behind that that I've learned is when you feel so powerless, like a lot of people do, don't we? Really? I mean, what can we control? Not much. But when you make people laugh, you're in control for a moment. So maybe that was the psychological diagnosis. This kid wants a little more power. He feels powerless as the world at home is crumbling. Hey, this makes sense. As his world at home was crumbling, the only power he could find was in a classroom being disruptive and trying to make some people laugh. What a crime, right? If it's funny, it's funny, though. Like, I'll give my students credit. If they're disruptive, but they legitimately make me laugh, it's rare. But I kind of, you know, give them a little nod. Like, okay, that got me. You're okay. Like, nice work. That was a well-thought-out, well-delivered punchline. And now let's get back. Let's get back to focusing on Robespierre, you sick bastards. But that was me in a classroom. Nice to teachers, I think. Most. Unless I felt picked on. But really, you know, doing just enough. Not cheating the system. Not manipulating the system. But doing just enough. I feel like within the last 10, 15 years of life, that's when I've wanted to become a learner. That's a good thing, though. You know, as I go through life now, my future, I go, give me knowledge. Give me knowledge. I didn't feel that way. I felt like reading box scores and talking about girls throughout the adolescent, teen, and even college years. That's why when people ask me about San Diego State academically, I go, I don't don't know. It's probably a great school. But you want to talk about the parties? You want to talk about the food? You want to talk about the beaches? There, I can guide you. But how's the journalism department? Who, Who gives a fuck? You know, I'm ages 17 to 21. How's the journalism department? If I was 30, then I would tell you, you know, it was really great. They prepared me for a world of journalism. No, I graduated college and wanted to be a comic. I wasn't drawn to any aspect of journalism. Now I am. Now I love it. Now I love teaching it. It's funny. You never know when the spark is going to hit you, that you actually care to learn some things from smart people. I feel like some of my coworkers are very smart. Some of these teachers, I go, damn, I wish I had you as my teacher. I never try to be the smartest person in a room. I hate those people. Nor do I want to be the dumbest, but I do want to be the person soaking up the information from the people that are smart. I I like that role. So here's why I bring any of this up. Had an emotional moment yesterday, sitting in temple. It's Yom Kippur. It's my day of atonement. All right. So all the awful things I did throughout the year atoned. It's the new me, sin free, clean slate. Thank you, religion. But I like Yom Kippur. It's the day where we fast and then break the fast and eat a lot. Renewal reflection, repair. I'd say I sit in temple once or twice a year. I like it. As a kid, it was torture. Torture. As a kid, it was torture. Now, I actually like it. And I got there alone yesterday. Got to temple alone. My mom was going to meet me a little later. I sat there with the book in my lap and the yarmulke on my head. And I exhaled and I finally had a moment. You know, when you're living in fast forward and it's all a blur, You know, we all go, I'm busy, busy lately. It was finally a moment where I go, okay, maybe I'm going to stop the busy mind for a moment and just be in this moment, this Yom Kippur moment, this yeoment. And as I looked up at the stage, the guy at the mic with the beautiful voice was our cantor. His name is David Margulies. I'm going to bring up his name. Here's why. 25 years ago, that same guy 
had to deal with me one-on-one because this same guy was so disruptive in bar mitzvah class that they pretty much shoved me out and said he can't be in the classroom anymore. Little too disruptive. But obviously my parents want me to become a man, have that bar mitzvah. So the cantor, 25 years ago, 1994, he agrees to have one-on-one sessions a couple times a week. And he's like this little New York Jewish guy, kind of looks like Kevin Pollock. Funny, really great singer and just a good human. Like the energy was undeniable. Even though I might not want to learn it, maybe I didn't want to be there, wanted to play mud football with my friends instead of learning the Torah and chanting my Hof Torah and writing a speech as a 13-year-old to deliver in front of friends and family. I mean, how nerve-wracking is this? It's overwhelming. But I wasn't bothered by the overwhelming aspect. I just wanted to be elsewhere, except for this guy, David Margulies. He said, look, if you give me 15 minutes of focus, we'll go outside and shoot some hoops. This is my bar mitzvah prep, one-on-one, because I couldn't be in a classroom setting. So Margulies would go outside with me every 15 minutes if I focused, and we'd shoot some free throws. And he had the ugliest form. He was like a lefty who shot it from the other ear. So he was a lefty, but he shot from his right ear like a dart. No spin, a knuckleball, the ugliest free throw shooter I've ever seen. But he tried, he cared. And back then I thought I was, you know, Mark Price. Is that an old Cleveland Cavaliers reference for you? Back then I thought I was Jeff Hornacek. You know, I wanted to school the cantor. Boy, did this story get a little Jewish. Hit you right in the Judaica. And then we'd go back and he would record his chanting onto a tape, onto a cassette, and I'd listen to it and just try to emulate it. Didn't know what I was saying. I don't know Hebrew. So when I sit in temple today and it's Hebrew, I don't know what's going on, but I like it. I don't know. I think it's meditative now. I think it helps me connect with the moment. I think it's nostalgic to see Margulies on stage yesterday and just look at his warmth, exuding his warmth. I was like, you know something? I want to cry and I never cry, but I started to clench my jaw and I felt my throat, you know, that feeling in your throat where you're like, oh, wait, hold on. Am I going to? Shed a tear, didn't shed a tear, wish I did, but still it was like five seconds of being very emotional about seeing the same guy, little balder, more gray hair, but the same fella. And we locked eyes. I was sitting in row four and I think he knew who I was. Maybe not. Maybe not at all. It's kind of funny to have history with somebody. And then, you know, you wonder, do you connect with any of those special moments? Or do you just constantly train the next bar mitzvah boy, Adam Sandler's best song in years? I was a selfless man to deal with me. 13 was probably my worst. Angst. 13. Oof. If I could have my bar mitzvah now, holy shit, would that be a good party. I'd be so prepared. I'd give a 12-minute speech. I'd talk about, you know, we have 90 seconds to process our emotions. Tell everybody in the congregation about that. You know, my dog's having ear ablation surgery. Why is he mentioning that in his bar mitzvah speech at age 38? I don't know, but it's the first... Couple of things I talked about. There's going to be a couple more things I talk about tonight. It's been a while. Episode 70. I've been wanting to do it and literally have not found the time. I don't drop literally a lot. That word is now for the teens to misuse, but literally have not found a half hour to get back involved with a little here we go action. So here we go. Average human lifespan in the 1600s. Why do I Google this shit? I don't know. As a history teacher, it's interesting. Average human lifespan in the 1600s, about 35 years old. So yes, women were getting pregnant by the time they were 14. Moms, by the time they were 15, 16, was very common. I teach 15, 16 year olds. That would be very uncommon today if they were all moms. Back then, very common. 
I'm 38 right now. Being 38 in the 1600s, elderly. Or just old, I should say. So when we picture all of this history we learn, picture young men. You know, you're not going to picture an elder statesman in the 1600s. Most of these people were dying by the time they were 40. The amount of diseases that would just kill off these people. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Average lifespan today in America, about 79. What's it going to be in 50 years? I don't know. It's kind of a cool thought. Like, is it ever going to be your average lifespan is 106? Modern medicine, a beautiful thing. Nutrition, if it improves. I say that, but, you know, the way we eat in America, maybe it's going to dip. Maybe it's going from 79 down to 76, down to 75, down to, uh uh-oh, we should probably change the way we eat in this country. Are you going on that rant? Nope. Okay, back to this. So here's what I was thinking. We don't know that many of our ancestors. Like, we could trace it back a few generations, right? It's amazing how little we know about real ancestors. And I don't want to talk about those websites, Ancestry.com. I've never even been tempted. But we all know, let's say, our dad, our dad's dad, so my grandpa, great-grandpa. I know his name. Past that, I know nothing. Sure, I could talk to some older relatives and say, hey, who was grandpa's grandpa? Maybe I could get four or five generations, and now I'm just knowing names. But at some point, nobody currently alive will know. And at some point, nothing documented will be able to tell me anymore. You know, a lot of us are going to trace it back to Europe. A lot of us here in America, we have the conversation of, yeah, I'm part English, I'm part Russian. I'm part French, I'm part Italian. I'm part Scottish, I'm part Irish. We, we all have these conversations, right? When we say that, we're not picturing humans. You know, if I say I'm part Russian, I'm part English, I'm part Romanian, I'm just picturing countries like land masses on a map. I'm not picturing a Russian guy that I might have had something in common with, you know, five generations back. Somebody, some sperm met an egg, you know, that was eventually going to become my great, 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 great grandfather. Who was this guy? I don't know. I'll never know. We only know a few generations. But don't you kind of wonder if they had some of our traits? Like if I think about my current traits, this is what evolution is, right? Aren't we constantly holding on to the traits that'll help us and then trying to get rid of the things that'll hurt us? I have a few traits that I don't need. Being this sensitive and neurotic, don't need it. Being this irritable, eh, not too irritable, but you know, I have my moments. Don't need it. But you trace it back five generations. Who is this great, 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 great grandfather of mine? Like when he was 21. Who's this guy? I don't know. You don't know. I'm saying you don't know in your own family. Guarantee you don't. Unless you come from like a very famous monarchy where they're all documented. Yeah, if you didn't come from a famous family, you stop knowing your ancestors pretty recently. And when I say pretty recently, I still think 1776, when we became a country, I still kind of think that's recent. In the grand scheme of things, in the grand scheme of things, like the history of the world, America's newish. So however you got here, wherever your family landed, trace it back further and then reach the point where you know nothing anymore. That nothingness to me is interesting. It's all modern world history. All right, three quick ones. Three quick ones. Here's what needs to be talked about. In my neighborhood, I like these updates from the suburbs that you don't care about, but humor me. Eh, humor me, eh? Why don't you? News from the suburbs. There are signs posted around telephone poles and trees in my neighborhood that say missing tortoise with a reward. You know, for a few days I would just walk by. 
But then I started to stop and read everything. I go, missing tortoise. Yeah, I got the phone number. I see the picture. That's a tortoise. This is not a joke. That's a legitimate reward they're offering if I find this tortoise. And then I immediately go into fantasy world. Does anybody else do this? I'm curious. When you see missing cat, missing dog, how badly within the next three minutes do you want to find that cat or dog and be the person that knocks on the door as the savior, as the hero? You know, that's a big moment. You start to fantasize like it's a Hollywood movie. I'll be the guy that finds the tortoise in a bush. And then what? I'll grab the tortoise and call the number and say, I'm ready for my reward. Isn't that kind of shitty to take the reward? And what's a good reward? If I found the tortoise, just put the number, right? Let's not do the mystery negotiation. How much? $50 reward? $500 reward? How much does the tortoise mean to you? I just said I'm spending 2800 on my dog's ear, so clearly if I lost him, I would have a big old reward. But this tortoise, you know, if you're going to write the word reward on the lost tortoise signs, how much am I making if I find him? And I want to be the guy. I don't know why. I live in this Hollywood mindset of like, oh, this would be the perfect moment. I'd be such a hero. You know, they'd love me. You know how it re- would really go down. They'd probably be like, all right, this guy stole our tortoise, and let's give him a dollar reward. It'd be anticlimactic. You see a lot of that. Lost cat. How often are they finding the cat? How often is somebody finding the cat and getting the reward? Does that actually happen? Yeah, I sometimes say this on the podcast. If you have my phone number and you've ever received a reward for anything lost, text me. I want to know the story. Some of you do this. Some of you who know me, you actually engage. I like it. Or on Twitter at jrosenberg957. I want to know. Anybody who posts a sign or have you ever posted the sign? You lost your cat, your dog, or your tortoise. Or anything. And has anybody ever brought it back and you gave them a reward? How much? What's good? What's a good reward? Who sets the price, right? Just curious. Yeah, and the tortoise is still lost. I'll try to give you weekly reports on that. But as of right now, the tortoise is still lost. I'm not making any of this up, by the way. Uh, Also, uh, I go toilet paper shopping quite a bit. Have you noticed? (laughs) Why do I go quite a bit? I don't know. I probably go a normal amount of toilet paper shopping. Have you noticed what every... Toilet paper company is telling you that their rolls have so much toilet paper that it's the equivalent to double the roll. So if it's a four pack, it'll always say four jumbo rolls, the equivalent. And they have like the math equation on the outside of the toilet paper. Four jumbo rolls equals eight. Like you're buying eight. Does not matter the company. Could even be the generic brand. Every toilet paper company feels the need to do the scam where they tell you what you're actually buying. Oh, you think you're buying 10 rolls? We got the biggest, baddest, boldest rolls, 20. There you go. Why don't you feel like you're buying 20 rolls now? No one feels that way. No one buys four rolls and comes home and says, I got eight rolls. No, you got the exact amount of rolls. I don't think it varies that much. It's how how much can fit on that little bar in your bathroom. The first person in the world of advertising, I actually think it'd be cool to work in advertising. Mad Men. Actually, I don't like that show. I think I'm the only one. But in the world of advertising, the first person that came up with that idea, like, what if we let people know that our roles are so big that it's the equivalent to buying more? You can't do that with other things. Can you? Convincing people that they're buying more than they're actually buying because it's big? Big bar of soap. Hey, there's two bars of soap for you. I mean, you're buying one, but our slogan is you just bought two. You idiot. I'll stop there. I'll stop with the soap. I could keep going and going. Can't we? 
I mean, can't we just keep going and going with that one? But here's how I'm going to end episode 70. Aziz Ansari is not that funny. Like, he's never been that funny to me, but I like him. I like him. His comedy makes me smile. Not laugh, but I, I smile. You know, his energy. He was in the movie Funny People, the Sandler movie Funny People with his character, Randy. And Randy's not funny either. I think I've seen everything Aziz has done. Master of None, I've watched the show. I smile, I don't laugh. Every stand-up comedy special he's ever done, I've seen them all. Not funny. But he's like amusing. You know, he's likable. Mr. Pop Culture. Parks and Rec. He's okay, right? He's like your classic B. He's not a C. He's certainly not an A. He's like a B comic, but he's very famous. He's so famous that here in this Me Too movement, the story that he almost forced a girl, or maybe he did force a girl to do something she didn't want, it became big and ugly. And will he ever recover? Well, the answer is yes, because he did a Netflix special. So, of course, when Netflix releases this special, I'm down to watch it. I'm bringing this up, not to analyze the comedy, but it was like the greatest beginning to a comedy special. I love watching how they begin comedy specials. Like, are they just going to bust out on the stage? Are they going to enter from the back? Are they going to have a little skit before? Show the crowd, show the arena. Just that little five to ten seconds before a comedy special actually starts. The buildup, I love. Well, Aziz Ansari's buildup for his most recent special was so good. And then at the end it says, directed by Spike Jones. And Spike Jones. Brilliant. Being John Malkovich. Adaptation. He actually did the Jackass movies. Her, that I didn't love, but he's a good director. So the whole special starts where it's just Aziz Ansari. It looks like it's 3 p.m. on a New York City day. And he's wearing jeans and a Metallica shirt. And you're like, all right, I guess this is rehearsal. And the whole time, it's just smooth, drinking a coffee in his jeans, Aziz Ansari, just walking down the street in the daytime. And the whole time, the song is playing Pale Blue Eyes by Velvet Underground. I'm going to play a little bit of that right now. And it works so perfectly to describe how sad he is on the inside that his career had this big hurdle, had this blip, where he now has to explain himself. I'm not a rapist. I'm not an aggressive womanizer. This story should not define me. And his special was so docile. You know, it's like he completely changed his act. He didn't have a lot of energy. He seemed remorseful, like he didn't want to ruffle feathers. He, he didn't have any of the zest that he has previously had. He sat down basically the whole show it was very weird the way it was filmed was unlike any comedy special i've seen it was like right up in his face the whole time but the song was perfect and it's become my favorite song right now so hold on i'm going to spotify i'm just gonna play it and then i'll say bye sometimes i feel so happy Sometimes I feel so sad Sometimes I feel so happy But mostly you just make me mad Baby, you just make me mad Linger on I like the lyrics. I actually play that song when I run. You're like, what? Usually you would think maybe play some Run DMC, right? Some Marshall Mathers. No, I play this slow, sad song by Velvet Underground because I love it. So it's called Pale Blue Eyes. 
if you want to check it out. Or actually, don't even listen to it. Just watch the first minute of these uh, of the Aziz Ansari special. I think you'll dig it. All right. Thanks for tuning in. That's episode 70. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>